0: How strong are you? (laughs) Right. We, when we're younger, we test how strong we are by, you know, seeing if we can beat our parents in an arm wrestling match or seeing who can run the longest and the farthest and things like that. As we grow older, the strength that we need is not always a tangible thing and yet it is real nonetheless. In the passage that we're gonna look at tonight in Psalm 21, that subject of strength, I think, is the idea that uh, the psalmist starts and ends this section with. And I think that it will be helpful for us to look at the development of this idea of strength throughout the psalm. Uh, He starts in verse one, O Lord, in your strength the king will be glad, and in your salvation, How greatly he will rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire, and you have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with the blessings of good things. You set a crown of fine gold on his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him, length of days, forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you place upon him, for you make him most blessed forever. You make him joyful with gladness in your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. Your hand will find out all of your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will devour them. Their offspring you will destroy from the earth and their descendants from among the sons of men. Though they intended evil against you and devised a plot, they will not succeed. For you will make them turn their back. You will aim with your bowstrings at their faces. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. And so there are two um, main characters in this psalm. We do see a third at the end. We'll talk about that when we get there. But the two main characters that we see in this psalm are the king and God himself. We see the king in the first half, And God Himself in the second half. Connected with God, we see those He opposes, and the psalmist sets these in contrast to the way that the king is described in the first half. So let's start out in verse 1 and look at that. O Lord, in your strength the king will be glad, and in your salvation how greatly he will rejoice. This seems to be tied to verse 7 to some degree, but it's also contrasted with verse 8. The king will be glad in God's strength. God's hand will find out all the enemies and find out all those who hate you. And so we have this idea of strength, arm, power. We see it in verse 1, and we see at least the idea of it in verse 8, set in contrast. The king will be glad versus the enemies will be found out. And so we see the contrast in this way here. And then we see in verse 2 you have given him his heart's desire, and you have not withheld the request of his lips. Sometimes we look at that and we question whether and what it is appropriate to ask God for. What can I ask God for? And sometimes if it's something that we really want, we feel guilty. We say, I shouldn't ask God for that. Or if we feel like it's something that doesn't fit with God's plan or what's going on in life right now, we feel like you know, some, maybe we shouldn't ask for that, uh, that somehow we're in opposition to God's will if we ask for things to change. And yet, in this verse, it says, You have given him his heart's desire. Now, there are certainly other passages in which... Uh, the desires of our hearts ought to be molded and brought into uh, just following after the pattern of what is pleasing to God. And I think the, the, the degree to which that is taking place, we can confidently come before God in prayer and say, God, I really desired this. Would you please do this? Obviously, there is a huge difference between... Um, praying certain things that we might ask God for. God, I really, really, really want a brand new sports car. Versus God, here's this situation that's troubling me. I need your help. I need you to work in it. Please work in it. Because the one we see a clear pattern of in Scripture. God, when there is trouble, when there is difficulty, when we need help, intervene. Show us your strength. We certainly see examples of that in Scripture. God, Give me something so that I can have whatever I want. I mean, that seems to parallel what James criticizes. You ask and you don't have because you ask so you can spend it on your pleasures. And so we have to recognize that the degree to which God will answer those desires is, I think, largely the degree to which we are asking according to things that we see in Scripture are clearly pleasing to Him. I think the second half of verse 2 also reminds us the sort of God that we serve. Because sometimes we look at God and we feel like God is just going to automatically say no. I don't know if you struggle with this with your with your family, maybe when your kids were younger. Um, maybe life is busy, maybe there's a lot going on, and so you sort of default to saying no. Can we do this? No. Are we going to go here? No. And yet... That is not God's attitude toward his people. It says you have not withheld the request of his lips. God hears his people. God helps his people. And this is said in contrast to God's response to the wicked, I think, in verse 9. Because in verse 9 it says, "...you will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will devour them on the one hand." You have God granting the request, the needs of his people. On the other, you have God punishing the wicked with wrath and fury and destruction. We see a further development in verse 3 of God's care for his people. For you meet him with the blessing of good things. You set a crown of fine gold on his head. Specifically, he is speaking of The king, when the king comes before God, in the context of Israel, you, God, heard the king's prayer, met him with blessings, and crowned him. So there's a recognition that God is the source of the king's authority, and that that authority is a blessing from God, and that, um, furthermore, that God is going to give other blessings to the king because of that relationship that he has. We see that in verse 4, he asked life of you, you gave it to him, length of days, forever and ever. Now, we look at a phrase like that and we ask ourselves, is this a exaggeration? And there's a sense in which no human being can ultimately fulfill the, the language that, that is used here by David. Who among us has length of days forever and ever? We don't. And yet, I don't think that David is exaggerating when he says that. And I don't think that um, David... I think there may be a sense in which David is speaking prophetically, because who's the one who truly has length of days forever and ever? Think of the words of Hebrews, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Christ is the one to whom that description best and most fully applies. And yet, think of all the situations in David's life when he thought that his life was coming to an end. Saul's pursuing him. David goes and hides in a cave. Saul is encamped and like, goes into the very cave where David is hiding. One noise, one false move, and David would have been struck dead by Saul's anger, and yet God spared his life. And so there was more than one occasion where God added to David's life more than he anticipated he would have, certainly in those years when he was fleeing from Saul. And when David asked God for that help, God gave it to him. In contrast, it says in verse 10, regarding the wicked, their offspring you will destroy from the earth and their descendants from among the sons of men. Here's the king... 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant with David and says that I will basically set someone on your throne forever, fulfilled ultimately in Christ, because all other human kings fell short of that, and yet here's on the one hand this promise of life, and on the other hand is this promise of death that comes to those who oppose God. This is, verse 8, the enemies. This is, verse 10, their offspring. And so, this again, I think, reminds us of this contrast that we see throughout the Old Testament. There is life and health and peace to those who connect themselves with God as His people Israel in the Old Testament, or through His people Israel, the nations who are supposed to watch them and marvel and see what God had done, those who connected themselves to Israel found that blessing through the nation of Israel. Think of, for example, Rahab in the Old Testament. She was not an Israelite, and yet she becomes part of the genealogy of Christ. She's an ancestor of Christ because she has attached herself to the people of Israel and God blessed them with life and favor and all of these sorts of things in connection with the covenant, the promise, that he made to David in perhaps partially response to the cries for help that David raised when he was fleeing from Saul, uh, which I think he felt confident to make because he was anointed by God to be the future king. Then we look at verse 5. His glory is great through your salvation, splendor and majesty you place upon him. Every human being who has glory or power or strength, it is derived from God. We're not independent. We don't have it in and of ourselves. Sometimes we think that we do. And we come to a passage, like it says in Corinthians, what do you have that you didn't receive? If you received it, why do you boast as though you had not received it? And there's certainly a tendency in our day to make people feel guilty about the things that they have, the benefits, the advantages in various ways. Whether that be due to the place of their birth, their economic status, their opportunities for education, all of those sorts of things. There's a tendency where uh, you're almost made in society today to feel guilty if you have anything that seems to be better in some way than someone else. And yet, because God is the one who gives those things. We should recognize with humility, I didn't earn it or deserve it, but we should also rejoice and thank him for the blessings that he has poured out on us. We see this again in contrast to verse 11. Verse 5, God has given glory to the King. The end of verse 5, Splendor and majesty you place upon him. This picks up creation themes that we see in uh, Genesis. Why does man have dominion over all of creation? Because he has delegated authority from God to rule over creation. We saw that in another psalm, that you've crowned him with glory and honor. Despite our weakness, despite our frailties, despite all these things, we are made in God's image We have value, we have worth, and we are crowned with glory and honor. And this was particularly true of the king that God had anointed. But in contrast to that, there are those who try to seize that authority, that honor, that position, apart from God's purpose. Verse 11, though they intended evil against you and devised a plot, they will not succeed. And it's the irony that those who were perhaps not seeking it Abraham, David, others that we see in the Old Testament histories, those who are not perhaps seeking glory and honor and majesty, God gave it to them. Consider David, the youngest son, shepherd boy. He wasn't even at the house when Samuel came to anoint him, he was out working. God uses unexpected, weak, foolish, poor people to accomplish his work, but in contrast to that, there are those who are proud and of themselves and seek to seize. They earnestly desire that position, that power, that privilege, and it says that God is opposed to them. They intended evil against you and devised a plot, but they will not succeed. And when we see the conclusion of how God treats the king, for you make him most blessed forever, you make him joyful with gladness in your presence. Again, we see this idea of blessing, of favor of God working with the king, that it's connected with God's presence, and we'll get to verse 7 in a moment, that the joy that is real and lasting is only found in God. But in contrast... Those who are opposing God, seeking to seize power on their own, trusting in themselves, verse 12, you will make them turn their back. You will aim with your bowstrings at their faces. And so it's this picture here comes this army. And now they've turned their back. Why? Because they're running away. They're in terror. They're fleeing. God has defeated them. This happened on a number of occasions in Israel's history, and I'm sure David could have looked back at the opportunities in which God gave them victory. Consider his conflict with Goliath. What did God do? God defeated the champion of the Philistines, caused the army to flee, and gave victory to God's people, when before that moment, they were all standing back in fear, what's going to happen can we do this is god really going to help us god gave victory and that's just one of many examples that we see throughout scripture the aiming with bowstrings at their faces is this idea that god's host is opposed to the army of the wicked and that he is going to defeat them and the bowstrings is picturesque language for military strength for the going on the offensive against them that god is the one who is actively opposing them How do we find God's strength? Because that's really the practical question, I think, for a lot of us. I don't think we disagree with any of the verses that we've looked at before up to this point. I don't think that we would want to be like the wicked and have God's opposition. I don't think we would necessarily expect to be like the king and be anointed by God in that sense. How do we have the strength that God provides? I think the key is in the central verse of the chapter, "...for the king trusts in the Lord." And through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. This verse, too, contrasts with verse 12. Firm, not shaken, in contrast to flee, turn their backs. What's the difference between the one who is not shaken and the one who flees? It's a question of whether they trust in the Lord or they trust in themselves. It's a question of whether they have a relationship with God or whether they don't. It says, For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the loving kindness, the faithful love, the covenant loyalty of God, that's the thing that gives us strength and keeps us from being shaken. And our faith in God is tested at times. Says the king trusts in the Lord. Did David have occasions in his life where it would be reasonable to think that he questioned whether God was really seeking his best interest? But the testimony of David's life was he trusts in the Lord. What was the thing that gave David confidence in God's presence, even when circumstances were up and down, even when he himself had sinned, even when there was this question of what the future would hold? What was it that gave him strength? The loving kindness of the Most High. That word is used over and over again throughout the Old Testament in the book of Psalms to speak of God's faithful love to his people. And so the natural question is, do we have that sort of relationship with God? When we need strength, where are we going to turn? Do we have a relationship with God? We don't have that relationship with God by trying harder, by checking off a list of things. We have it by faith, simple trust in God and his promises and who he is. So the king has strength from God, and his enemies will be defeated through God's strength. What about us? Look at verse 13. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Verse 13 changes the focus but repeats the idea from verse 1. And, O Lord, in your strength, the king will be glad. And in your salvation, how greatly he will rejoice. And then verse 13 closes for perhaps an opportunity for the people to respond as they sang this psalm. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. In Israel's experience, God uniquely and specially blessed the anointed king. But God's kindness, strength, help wasn't just for the king, it was for all of God's people. And so we can certainly seek God's help, seek God's strength, and praise him for what it is that he is going to do in and among us, we can sing and praise his power. So as we said a few moments ago, are you trusting in God for your strength? Do you have a relationship with God as the basis for security in life, according to verse 7? And then as God demonstrates that strength, even in the process of Him doing so, do you acknowledge and and praise and, and call out, be exalted, O Lord, in your strength, and do you sing and praise His power? God has strength. One of the main criticisms that people have of Christianity that recurs somewhat often is Christianity is a a religion for weak people. You had a stronger mind, a stronger will, a stronger body, whatever it is, you wouldn't need Christianity. But those of us who know God, I think, ought to recognize that there is no shame in admitting that your strength runs out. Why do professional baseball players not play the entire game? Because their strength runs out. Why do, um, why do we need to sleep at night? Because our strength runs out. Why do we come to moments in life when we are overwhelmed, and distraught and we just sort of crash emotionally and and mentally and all these sorts of things. Why? Because our strength runs out. And in those moments where do we need to turn? A lot of things we can turn to. But money's not going to help you in that moment. The best of human friends may offer some counsel or you may find like Job that they're not as helpful as you thought they would be there are pleasures that might temporarily distract us but the thing that will help us is our relationship with God and so we need to pursue that we need to rely on that and we need to see God's strength not only for those he appoints as leaders particularly in this context, but also for all of us as God's people. Where is your strength? As we go to our time of prayer, I'll just ask if there's any updates on these things.